less dumb. That is the code that you can use at Squarespace to get a free trial and 10% off. Squarespace is that website that lets you make other websites, except it's simple and easy and beautiful and it's drag and drop and they have all this amazing support and the plans start at $8 a month and it's just the best way to make a website. I made a website with it. You can make a website with it. I believe in you. And you can go to squarespace.com slash not so smart to get started. And remember that special code to get that special treatment is less dumb. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 25. So, um, tell me about it. Tell me what, um inspired you to create this particular design and shape? Well, my persona in the SEA is, I guess, uh, Scottish. And since my heritage is Scottish, I wanted to, for my persona to be Scottish, you know, because- This is Eddie Robertson. I love Eddie. He's a friend of mine and he's a photojournalist and together we've done a lot of work together. We've gone on a lot of adventures. And he's just one of those people who is always on a new kick, always exploring something new. Right now, what you're hearing is Eddie describing this tunic, this medieval tunic that he's made by hand. was a Scottish lord, and the family was beaten. I was taken hostage, and I was taken by England. And this is my... Uh, Richard the Lionheart slash Scottish tabard. So the lines are... Eddie is the sort of person you want on your side in any post-apocalyptic scenario. And he has all these country boy can survive skills from car repair to how to grow crops and build animal traps and all of that. And he's seen a lot of the world. He's read a lot of books. And professionally, he's seen a lot of misery and a lot of wonder. But we were inspired by the tabards that we'd seen online. And my son, pretty good at with a needle, and I drew out what I wanted. And he liked the same thing, and so he cut it out and stitched it up. And we garnished it with some iron-ons. And I uh, also have a belt that is... Uh, Eddie has a kind of elf, mountain man, shaman quality about him. I've seen him chase bears into the woods to get photographs of them. Uh, not for a story, it just so happened that, uh, you know, the story was about the bear, but he wanted to go get a picture of the bear for himself. And he wanted to commune with it, I guess, in a sort of way. But I've also seen him talk to family members who've recently lost a loved one. I've seen him 
take photographs of things that most people would want to look away from, horribly mangled bodies, the recently deceased. It takes a special kind of person to be a photojournalist, I think. Someone has to be um, very, very brave to do it well. Someone doesn't mind getting into situations that are dangerous or peculiar. And you have to have an eye. You have to see the world better than most people. Clearer. Here's some mulled wine that I spilt on it in the Viking Hall. There, a little red splotch right here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I said, well, I should wash that out, but I'm not going to because it reminds me, you know, there's always that moment that you have that you say, you know, you don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss taking it in and absorbing all the essence of it, you know, the smoke in your eyes and the conversation, those people that for just for a moment, just for a, just for a split second, you're almost there. And that was the mulled wine experience. Whenever I was sipping mulled wine, it was cold outside. We had a fire. There was smoke in my eyes, and I had no reason to be in there because my eyes was burning, and uh, uh, it was stuffy. But the experience was about taking it all in and absorbing not only the spilled wine but the smoke in my eyes as well. Now, what about this right around the armholes? Well, now, Eddie is telling me this story about this tunic that he has created by hand and has had wines built upon it that he finds very meaningful and he will not wash out because he loves the story that it, it helps him tell. Because we once covered this event put on by the Society for Creative Anachronism. And at that event, we witnessed this medieval battle recreation that really just blew our minds. Uh, it was huge. It was like something at a Braveheart. It was insane i have audio from it actually Here, here's a little bit of it so eddie and i covered this event and we marveled at what we were seeing not just this insane battle that uh, lasted for a very long time and looked really dangerous but also the the place was enormous and it wasn't like a renaissance fair I've been to renaissance fairs he's been to renaissance fairs and there was nothing mythological nothing magical very, not a lot of children though there were children there it was these people were serious they were trying to reenact history and that's what it's all about the SCA is the Society for Creative Anachronism and they have about 30,000 members and they stage these big events around the country and they reenact history they do real blacksmithing they do real carpentry and calligraphy and they brew and they have parties and it's all about trying to be historically accurate and reenact history uh, from a time period that all these people love. And it's also got this Burning Man quality about it where it's a place that people go to to leave modern society, to leave behind all of their obligations and their, uh, their personas. And then they adopt a different persona for a little while, enjoy what what's going on there, and then they go back to their modern lives. And Eddie was hooked. This is way better than Skyrim. This was sort of the real thing, and uh, he loved it. And so he immediately started working on uh, the clothes he was going to wear for the next event, and he joined. Yes, everybody has to be in period uh, costumes. Uh, if you were wearing jeans and a T-shirt like we are today, that would be called 
uh, uh, mundane and no, no one is to be called mundane at the event because it spoils the experience, you know, and you want everything in your, in your vision and your peripherals to be period. And of course you, everything can't be that way, but you want everything to, uh, appear that you're in that. And you want to let go of the world for at least a little while. And it throws you back to that time. So now, so you talk, you said the word persona several times. When you put this on, how did it make you feel? It made me feel like with each layer of clothing that I put on, it put me closer and closer to the era that I believe that I would have liked to have lived. And of course, it's not a perfect. It's not a perfect world now. It wasn't a perfect world then, and but at least it gave me a sense of being. Do you think if you had gone? In mundane clothes, without, if you hadn't gone in any kind of uh, costuming at all, it would have been the same experience? No, 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 it wouldn't. As, as a matter of fact, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, there, w- there were uh, two people there and that I guess they thought it would be cute just to walk around in their jeans and T-shirts or they just weren't told. And they were basically shunned. And they were the outcast. And, and I, fi- I actually found it... Uh, mildly repulsive that they would want, attempt to do that and I didn't want to see it so I turned the other way and went back to where I felt I belonged and and they didn't stay the whole day and if they did I didn't see them again or either they, they came there and bought some clothing and when you took this off what was that? What did that feel like when you went back to wearing your, your <laughs> other clothes? I felt sad <laughs> I felt like uh, it's do I really have to go back? You know, do I have to do it? Does it have to stop? And I'll definitely put a picture of this tunic and Eddie up on the website so you can see what he created and how much he loves it. And I asked him, does he think that he'll ever replace it or get rid of it? Or does he imagine one day that he would just decide that he no longer wants this, uh, this article of clothing. And he said, I mean, I'll never throw it away or get rid of it unless, you know, maybe, uh, you know, it'd take a divine act of providence. It'd take a whole lot of wine. Yeah, take a whole <laughs> lot of bold wine. <laughs> so Eddie spent a week there, and he plans on doing that every year, he tells me. Uh, and he very much misses it. He misses the fires, and he misses walking around, and he misses uh, tilting his head toward people and saying, good day, sir, or good day, ma'am, and that sort of thing. He really, 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 really enjoyed it and gets a lot out of it. And part of that is the, cl- the clothing, right? Part of that is this tunic that he plans on not just keeping forever, but adding to over time. And, and when he dons it, he knows that it's going to not just, uh, like signal that he's about to experience something that he loves, but he feels like it, it will actually change the person that he believes himself to be just by having that fabric over his body. Clothes don't just change the way other people see us. They change the way we see ourselves. And it's really actually quite surprising how deeply clothes can affect our perceptions, thoughts, behaviors, decisions, emotions, and judgments. And there's a lot of research into it. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. 
My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we discuss another topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we speak to an expert on that topic and try to figure it out. This episode, we're going to talk about enclosed cognition, and our guest is Hayo Adam, a an experimenter, a scientist who helped coin the phrase enclosed cognition by doing the pioneering research into that realm of human psychology. So enclosed cognition is really cool. It's a really interesting concept. But before we get into it, I want to introduce to you just this, where I'm coming from. So to do that, I'm going to read this excerpt from my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb. If you take enough objective steps back and squint really hard, you can realize you're looking at a form of technology, an artificial enhancement of the human body. Clothes allow you the ability to survive in colder climates or to escape the appetites and anger of insects. And clothing protects you from harm and makes it possible to do all sorts of things better than if you were nude. And some estimates suggest your ancestors donned apparel beginning about 650,000 years ago. That means clothing was one of the first thing humans and human ancestors made by hand. It isn't too much of a stretch to speculate that along with weapons and tools, clothing was among the first art forms and among the first items to materialize as physical representations of the evanescent internal world of the human mind. Clothes would be left behind by the dead, would vary by culture and individual, would represent mastery of technique or lack thereof, and could communicate class, status, roles, intent, and all sorts of other things. Clothes, in other words, were likely among the first items in all of human history to be charged with symbolism and to communicate ideas from one person to another independent of their creator. That's the end of the excerpt. And before we go into enclosed cognition, I just wanted you to realize, and you probably noticed this, you've realized this, you've suspected this, I'm sure, that most of the research into the way clothes affect the mind, the way they affect behavior and perception, has had to do with how observers are affected by different clothes worn by the same person, or how they change the way they react to particular people wearing particular kinds of clothes. So if you have a person who is wearing a fast food employee's uniform, people will react differently to that person than if that person is wearing a business suit. Or people react differently to a person wearing a military uniform than they do to a person wearing a uniform that indicates that they're a garbage man or that they are an employee of a big box retail store. So that's the kind of research that's been done in the past. Our guest today, Hayo Adam, did research with his research partner, Adam Galinsky, into how clothes affect the wearer. And their research discovered that you can give people tests of mental agility, of uh, not necessarily intelligence, but the ability to problem solve and uh, things related to problem solving. And if you give that person a doctor's coat or a lab coat, uh, they will respond differently to those problems than if they're wearing street clothes. But more interestingly, they will respond differently than if you tell them that the lab coat that they're wearing is a painter's smock versus other people who are told the exact same coat is a doctor's coat or lab coat. 
So Hayo is going to explain all of that in the interview coming up. So who is Hayo? Hayo is an assistant professor of management and a postdoctoral fellow at Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. He studies the effects of culture on the psychological processes that affect organizations. And he also investigates interpersonal dynamics. And so his research is all about multicultural experiences, creativity, and identity. So he says on his, uh, on his website that he explores the effects of cultural artifacts such as clothing on task performance, and he studies the effects of cultural backgrounds on decision-making, and in particular, the social influence of emotions in negotiations. So let's listen to what he has to say about enclosed cognition. All right. Hi-o. I am very happy to have you on the show so that we can talk about this amazing new thing in, um, in psychology. And it's going across several disciplines called enclosed cognition. But before we get there, uh, let's just sort of talk a little bit about what led up to this research. I think people are familiar with the concept that clothes change the way that we see other people. Um, a person wearing a police uniform is going to affect our behavior and our perception more and differently than perhaps the same person wearing a clown suit. So from your expertise, um, how pervasive is this effect on us? How clothes, uh, how other people wear clothes, how is that uh, uh, pervasive is that on our behavior, an effect on our behavior? Right. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on this show um, or on this podcast. Great. Oh, I'm yeah. so happy to have you on. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I think it's difficult to overstate the effect that clothes have on others. Um, I mean, when, when we looked at the literature, there is quite a bit of research on this effect, right? And I think uh, it's hardly surprising that the clothes we wear matter in terms of the impressions we give off to those we interact with. Um, in terms of just how big this effect is, I mean, so when you ask the question, one thing that came to mind was uh, con artists and so I was immediately so I, I like movies quite a bit and I was reminded of the movie Catch Me If You Can mm -hmm. which is based on the true story of uh, this con artist called uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. Mm -hmm. and he successfully posed as a, a doctor, as a lawyer and as an airline pilot and I think he was successful in doing so partly because he wore the uniforms that then made others believe that he actually is a doctor, a lawyer, or an airline pilot, even though he had no, I think, as far as I know, real training in any of these professions. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of, um, these these clothes give us a shorthand, a shortcut to predicting what we could expect from our environment, I'm assuming. And um, it's, I think it's, uh, the first part of being an imposter of any kind is to put on clothes and to put into uh, dress up in a way that we uh, will affect other people's behavior. But your research focuses on how clothes that you wear affect your own behavior. And are there some examples from the literature that you drew upon before you did your research? Right. So uh, one of the main reasons why we conducted the studies um, was because there's fairly little research on how clothing affects the behaviors of the people who wear the clothes. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the few uh, 
sort of studies that we found were kind of scattered across different literatures. So one literature is called uh, or is work on something called de-individuation, which talks about the de-individuating effects of clothing, how uh, wearing, for example, large hoods provide a sense of anonymity. And then there, there are some classic studies that show that wearing large hoods makes you more likely to administer electric shocks to others. So it uh, gives us this sense of that we can get away with um, uh, not-so-nice behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, then there's some research in the domain of color psychology uh, showing that, for example, wearing black uniforms makes sports teams act more aggressively than wearing non-black uniforms. And uh, then another study that I thought was very interesting was in the domain of self-objectification that showed that wearing a bikini made women perform worse at math. Um, so there are a few studies, again, scattered across different literatures that speak to this effect of uh, clothing on the wearer's behaviors mm -hmm. and um, psychological processes. But we wanted to... You know, provide a more unifying framework to work with and to hopefully um, you know, encourage other people to, to uh, do more research on this topic. And if I remember correctly, the research into um, like when women wear bikinis before and perform uh, worse on math, the men also would wear uh, a bathing suit that was similar and they the effect wasn't the same. So there was something in the in the thinking about what you're wearing that changed the uh, output of your behavior, which is sort of what got you guys into this uh, whole um, research, correct? Uh, right. So um, you're right. And uh, this, I think, speaks to something that we found is really important. It's what you associate with the clothes. So it's all about the symbolic meaning that you associate with an article of clothing. So how is this different from something like priming, which is also heavily based on how you associate uh, a stimulus with, with your later behavior. How is, it, how is wearing something different from just normal priming? Uh, that's, that's actually a question that uh, one of the reviewers asked of us uh, when we tried to publish this paper. Um, so, you know, uh, we, we actually had one study in which we contrasted a basic priming effect with the effect of wearing an article of clothing and uh, we find that the physical experience of wearing an article of clothing, so in our studies a lab coat, um, had an effect that went above and beyond a basic priming effect. So priming still has an effect but there seems to be something special about the physical experience of wearing a piece of clothing. Mm -hmm. So um, before we go too far into it, uh, just sort of take us through what your experiment was and what you discovered. Right. So uh, we conducted three experiments in which we tested the idea that wearing a white lab coat makes you perform better on attention-related tasks. And there are two reasons why we chose a white lab, coats, uh, white lab coat for our studies uh, the first reason is really a more practical reason. We ran over 200 subjects in total, and so we needed a lot of coats. And you can wear, um, uh, you can buy these white lab coats in bulk on the internet. 
So that makes them relatively cheap. Uh -huh. um, and then the second uh, reason is that white lab coats tend to have a clear symbolic meaning. So we conducted a brief survey and we found that white lab coats are associated quite strongly with professions like scientists and doctors. And therefore, they are also associated with traits like attentiveness and carefulness and the importance of not making any mistakes. Uh, so we could develop a clear hypothesis about the relationship between a, wearing a lab coat and performance on re attention-related tasks. And so in the first experiment, uh, we ran a very uh, simple uh, design. We gave 58 students a test to measure the selective attention in which they basically had to identify the color of a word that's spelled out using a different color. For example, the word blue may appear in red letters. Mm -hmm. And then some students wore their regular clothes for the test, while others were randomly assigned to wear a white lab coat. And those wearing the lab coat made about half as many mistakes on this test compared to those wearing their regular clothes. Mm. And then in the second experiment, we wanted to take this a little bit further, and we had a different attention test. So subjects uh, viewed two nearly identical pictures that had minor differences between them, and they had to identify what wasn't the same between these two pictures as fast as they could. And this time around, some subjects wore a white coat that they were told was a doctor's coat. Others were given the exact same coat but they were told it's a painter's coat, and some subjects were no coat at all, so they again completed the test in their regular clothes. Uh, but those subjects who completed the test in their regular clothes, um, they, they were still given a white doctor's coat that were, they were just able to see in the room as they took the test. So we still kind of primed the idea of a doctor's coat. Mm -hmm. So in this test, only those wearing the supposed doctor's coat found more differences in the pictures compared to the other two groups. And then finally, in the third experiment, uh, subjects were again broken into three groups, some wearing a doctor's coat, so a coat that was described as a doctor's coat, some wearing a painter's coat, and some who merely had a doctor's coat put on a desk in front of them. So this time we primed it a little bit more strongly and we actually had these participants in that con last condition uh, write a little essay about how they identify with the doctor's coat. Um, so then they were all given the uh, picture test again and once again only the people who wore a coat described as a doctor's coat performed better on this test. So okay <laughs> so this is this is really amazing research for a couple of reasons. One being that you've you you included priming, and so the effect that you found was stronger than priming, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's so that sort of settles that whole priming side of things, or at least it begins that conversation. But the the other part of it is that both groups are getting the exact same coat. It's whether or not they believe that it's a doctor's coat or a painter's coat that changes how they then perform on a test of mental uh, agility. And um, it's it's a, what makes that amazing to me is it's like the the coat is is almost like a magical charm, but it's not the coat that's doing it; it's the belief in the coat that's doing it. Exactly. So you know that in terms of the physically experience, it's exactly the same, right? It's the same coat that they're wearing, but 
what we changed is the meaning that you associate with the code. So this really speaks to, it's all about what you associate, what kind of traits and characteristics uh, you associate with the article of clothing that you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And so that means that um, your research also is therefore, you can, one of the things you can extrapolate from it is that symbolic meaning is a very powerful and important part of the human experience. Um, how do you see that? What is what is your take on symbolic meaning and what, and what you've discovered in your research? Um, I don't know if I have a great answer for that, but I mean, basically, what I what I um, just said in terms of you know, it, I mean, clearly the research shows that symbolic meaning uh, does play a critical role uh, in terms, at least in terms of um, how what we wear influences how we think and how we feel and how we act. Mm -hmm. So. Why do you what do you think is the the secret sauce here when it comes to the wearing the clothes being more powerful than just thinking about the clothes? Well, so this is really an open question for future research. Um, so I was uh, frankly a bit surprised that the that the uh, effects of wearing the the lab coat were stronger than um, just priming the. Um, uh, priming participants with the code, uh, but it does align with some uh, recent work in the domain of embodied cognition. So, for example, there's some research showing that um, sort of physically priming, uh, so it, um, assuming expansive body postures um, versus constricted body postures triggers the concept of power more strongly than explicitly priming. Uh, power, mm -hmm. high or low power. So there seems to be um, something stronger about the physical experience um, of, um, you know, for example, wearing clothes as compared to just being primed with it and like um, activating um, your memory um, about something or making something more salient as you, for example, write about it. Mm -hmm. The um in your research, in the study, you talk about how this kind of helps open up um, research so far has been more on what we think, uh, the the morality, the uh, power, things that are, we associate, and your your research is opening more on how we think, attention and cognition, and then in clothed cognition, open doors into exploring how those topics, how we think about topics like that. Um, where do you think that we are going to go with this research? How would you like to see your research taken um, where would you like to see it taken next? Um, so, you know, I really see these uh, this set of studies as uh, as a first step into exploring this uh, topic a little bit more in depth. I really hope that um, you know we and hopefully some others will do more studies uh, on this topic and go beyond uh, lab coats um, and explore other types of clothing. Ideally, also test this in a, in a field setting. So all of our studies were lab-based. And so I think it would be really interesting to see if these effects hold up in the real world and then also um, look at it more longitudinally. Um, so is it possible that you know, the, the effects of wearing an article of clothing only influence how you behave and how you perform? Um, for just a few minutes, because most of our tests in, in our studies were just a few minutes long. Um, is it possible that, that those effects 
hold up over time or do they maybe wear off as you get used to wearing, for example, your work uniform and then the effects, you know, you, you kind of habituate to it. But then I think another interesting question is, you know, maybe you get used to it, but then what happens if you stop wearing it? So maybe putting on my, you know, a, a doctor's coat when I work in the hospital initially has a positive effect on my performance. Over time, that effect wears off, but then it would be interesting to see if maybe by uh, not wearing the um, the uniform anymore, my performance then goes down. Yeah, that's great. And so, like, from your perspective, what you do know so far, what what advice would you give to lay people based off what you've discovered so far? Right. So I think um, one perhaps more, uh, not as intuitive takeaway from this research is that you need to be mindful that clothes do not only influence others, but also yourself, right? Uh, also the people who wear the clothes. So think about the meaning that you associate with a particular item of clothing and then dress accordingly to use it to your advantage. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to take, uh, before we run out of time, I want to take some questions from just uh, some listeners and uh, readers off of Facebook and they all there are a lot of questions that people pose and I sort of brought them down to a few here that I knew that we could answer easily um, Christian de, de Alozio asks if um, do you think that this effect had something to do maybe with the insecurity of the wearer would that have a, a greater uh, effect on the person the enclosed cognition would it be greater or weaker based off of whether or not the person is insecure or they have a strong personality that's a very interesting question. Um, I do think that personality variables could moderate the effect. I'm not sure if it has anything to do with being weak or insecure. Um, but maybe someone, for example, who scores high on conscientiousness, which is one of the big five personality traits, those people might pay more attention to what they're wearing and then the effect might be amplified for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is a very interesting question, and I do think there may be important individual differences that could be explored in future research. Okay, and I would assume that you know if uh, if the symbols are if you are if the symbols are very important to you and they're very salient to you, then this effect probably I would speculate would be greater because you know if you're uh, for instance if you're a uh, if you're a third generation soldier and you're very patriotic and you believe very much in what you're doing, then putting on the uniform of a soldier would may maybe have a stronger effect on your behavior than someone who was drafted and was uh, not eager to be wearing that uniform. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and again, yeah, I think it really depends on what you associate with the clothes. So I can also see how, you know, some people see an expensive suit as something that's very desirable and um, symbolizes high status and power. It might then make them um, act more assertively, but other people see that as you know selling out or as something very phony or fake, and it might act, uh, make them act more insecurely. So um, I think yeah, it really depends on what you associate with the clothes. Mm-hmm. So uh, Nathan Commodore asks if there is a correlation in your mind between um, prof- being professional and um, acting in a professional way and normal kids' behavior. What he's getting around to asking here is, do you think that dress codes, based off of what you've researched so far and what you've, um, the literature that you ingested before doing your research, do you think that there is uh, 
any value to the dress codes that certain schools um, put upon their their students and the mandatory dress codes that ask all the students to wear the same sort of thing. Do you think that affects kids positively, or or uh, what is your take on dress codes? Mm, I think uh, there are many factors that could contribute to um, the positive versus negative effects of um, uh, implementing a dress code at a school. Uh, I will say that we did get a bunch of emails from the most unexpected places, and several of them are from from teachers who said, oh, we read about your studies, and we actually just implemented a dress code in our school for uh, our problem children, and we made them wear... So this was really surprising to me because this, uh, they did that before the study came out. So they made the problem children, I think it was at a high school in Chicago, they made them wear coats, uh, lab coats, and um, they said that they, you know, this is anecdotal evidence, but they said that they think that it had a positive effect on the students, that attendance was higher and students started sitting up straight. And so I can see that it might have some uh, positive effects um, um, on, you know, for example, students' behaviors in schools. Overall, I don't, uh, you know, the, the, the dress code, Thing. I think that's yeah. This is something that we are actually thinking about uh, doing next. So really, you know, testing the the implications of our research and and real organizations. One thing that um, we've been toying with is, for example, the casual Friday. Oh yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, so. You know, will that have, do casual Fridays actually have a positive or negative effect on performance? Um, I think that's a very interesting question from from a clothing perspective, right? Uh, for 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 uh, given our research, and I, I think I, I can see it going both ways depending on the kinds of tasks that you're responsible for. So I can see, for example, that. Uh, maybe if your job involves a lot of creativity, maybe wearing casual clothing and um, something that you feel very comfortable and at ease in might make you perform better because it kind of like frees you of the constraints of having to put on a suit and tie. But then maybe if your if your job is uh, involves more sort of attention related tasks where it's really important to focus and be super professional, then maybe casual Fridays have a have a negative effect. On, on performance. So I, I can see it going both ways, and I think yeah, this would be a really interesting next step for this research. Mm-hmm. Jane Sadlin-Violet, she was asking about um, Casual Fridays, and you, and you just mentioned that um, that's mm-hmm. an area of interest for you. And her question is, uh, she's a teacher, and I think mm-hmm. that they've been um, encouraged to believe that Casual Fridays actually lowers their... Um, their productivity on casual Fridays. And, mm-hmm. and she feels that um, she, would, she would be more productive if she was more comfortable. So she's wondering if there is some sort of push-pull going on between enclosed cognition and simply comfort itself and productivity. And so what do you think about that? Hmm. Um, you know, again, I think... If, if if she would feel more comfortable in you know casual clothes, it might very well be that she would perform better. By and large, it, yeah, I think it depends on what what people would associate with again the the, the clothing that they wear. I do think if if you wear more professional clothes, it might make you act a bit more professionally. I mean, at least that would be consistent with the research we've been doing so far. 
And so from that perspective, I think it might be beneficial to, to wear the um, more professional outfit. And you know, not to mention that in a classroom environment, I think there, there are going to be huge effects in terms of impression formation and how the kids are going to react to what you're wearing. Right, right. And um, so just wearing something a bit more professional might make the kids sort of treat you a little bit more professionally as well or uh, treat you with a little bit more respect. Um, you know, I think um, something that would be interesting to test and that would be a little bit would really come uh, closer to the question of how, uh, you know, of these intrapersonal as opposed to interpersonal effects of clothing would be, for example, in call centers. So I wonder if, because there the other person really can't see you. Mm, yeah. And then, so I, w- I wonder if wearing something more professional will make you work harder or perform better at, like, for example, a call center job or people who now, you know, more and more people work from home. You know, um, we, we had a couple of people talk to us and say, like, yeah, even when I work from home and I don't really interact with anybody so nobody can see what I'm wearing, I like to dress up in a suit and tie when I sit in front of my computer and work just because I uh, realized when I, you know, I just do work in my pajamas, I just tend to slack off, I'm a bit, I'm just lazier and I'm not as productive. So I think that really speaks to this uh, intrapersonal effect and so the power of clothing over the wearer, um, you know, and and do you think you know a suit and tie is something that it's just it's just the meaning is arbitrary it's it's cultural it's something that comes from that you've been taught that you've learned that you've absolutely assessed. so do you think that there's any potential to reprogram yourself in and does, do you have any choice in the matter are you are you locked into these cultural values or can you ascribe your own value to clothing or anything that you um, surround yourself with symbolically or do you think that we're sort of trapped in that and there's no way out of it. Oh, well, that uh, sounds a little bit <laughs> pessimistic, maybe. Uh, well, so, <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's both, right? So I think uh, culture does play uh, a huge role in terms of shaping the symbolic, symbolic meaning that's associated with an item of clothing, right? So a lot of my other research is actually on culture and you know, cross-cultural differences and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, but anyway, having said that, of course, um, there are many fiercely independent thinkers who uh, who might actually want to go against what uh, you know culture tells them to associate with something with an article of clothing. So I, I think there are going to be some individual differences and all that. But generally, by and large, I do think that um, certain art, uh, certain items, certain clothes do have probably more kind of almost universally accepted mm-hmm. meanings associated with them. Right. And then um, certain clothes might be a little bit more, might be more variance in terms of what you associate with it. Like what you said, like a, a suit and tie, I think, um, yeah, that can go either way. But I think uh, a, a lab coat, you know, uh, in many countries where a lab coat is required for doctors, for scientists, I think that would, for example, be pretty strongly associated with um, you know, paying attention, being careful, not making mistakes. Right. Is the suit and tie, um, why do you think it is that the suit and tie has become such a universal symbol for um, acting in a professional manner? It's, and it seems to cut across so many different cultures, and including cultures that just sort of recently joined the uh, Western rat race sort of thing. Um, is there, 
what do you what do you think uh, gives it so much of its um, power? It's uh, it's um, its ability to cross cultures and, and sort of take root is, is such a powerful symbol. Uh, that's a great question, actually. I, I should try to read up on that. It's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. So where did the suit and tie come from? So I think it's, it's perfectly understandable that, uh, you know, those uh, countries or regions in the world that are now sort of starting to engage in more business practices, that they will adopt that. I mean, because it's a, it's a sign of legitimacy and I think um, uh, and it signals that, that you want to play in that same uh, league sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know, it, it just rem- so you know. You told me that I can go off on tangents, so sure. I'm going to do that now. It reminds me a little bit of. Uh, so I read this great book. It's a, it's a it might be a German only book. Uh, so I read it in German. It's about a, a, a Chinese person who goes from ancient China and like time travels into modern Germany, and so uh, he observes all these interesting. Um, Thinks so, so he thinks you know there's a dragon coming at him, but when it's really a car, so he he interprets everything from his own, you know, uh, cultural background and with his own cult, through his own cultural lens. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that he observes and tries to make sense of is he says there are, uh, all the uh, males in this society are wearing these color uh, colored uh, things around their neck. And uh, I wonder if it's like a hierarchy, because you know, some people wear orange, some people wear red, some people wear blue. Maybe it signals like what kind of job they're doing. So he's really perplexed by this notion of wearing a tie. And it just reminded me of that. Like, so I wonder, like, where where did this come from? I, I think and, I've read that it came from um, the uh, uh, you know the, the 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 suit came from the military uniform, and and. Uh, and it slowly over time is just been sort of a a a play on the military uniform and has changed over the years and that the the tie is sort of uh the scarf the uh the neckerchief that would be worn uh by the rider of a horse and it's over time slowly mutated into a purely fashion oh, object okay and that um and what what is fascinating about that is that you know it became you know, both men and women uh, wear some version of the suit, and then people from cultures that never had this as um, part of their history are now wearing suits to join in, like you were saying, into the modern business. And it's 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 such a um, a weird mimetic thing that is uh, across. It's it's one of those. Well, there are only so many things that are purely just human that cross all cultures. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, this is like the uniform that has crossed all cultures. We all wear suits to do business. And um, it's such a fascinating object that we've all ascribed the same value to across every culture. Um, that's fascinating. Just yeah, like, that's very interesting. Um, yeah. And then I think from that perspective, it makes sense that I think, you know, um, probably many people would associate the suit with a sense of authority or assertiveness. And then given that it came from military uniforms it makes sense to have that association i guess um but i guess military uniforms will still have a, a, a cleaner or a stronger or more universal sort of association uh, than, than the business suit right well okay i have one last question for you and this is just i think this is a great question to ask a uh, an academic a scientist uh this comes from a uh from someone on facebook lee story and she simply asks um does the adage "fake it till you make it" ring true? Uh, 
in in the idea that if I want to, uh, if, I, if there's something I aspire to be, can I wear the clothes of that thing, and will it help me fake it until I make it? Um. Well, uh, the 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 story of Frank Abagnale Jr. certainly would support that idea. Right. Um, I, I think uh, there there is some truth to it, um, and I think that this idea of like wearing certain clothes to, for example, get a job or perform better at a job initially until you actually learn how to do the job. I think that also rings uh, rings true. Uh, we uh, talked to a few people about this research. Um, when we were doing it and they uh, came up with very interesting stories from their personal lives like yeah so when I um, have a job interview or an important presentation I wear my lucky tie or my lucky shirt for the job interview um, so yeah uh, in general I think I think so yes <laughs> I love it okay <laughs> um, so people are going to be uh, interested in this topic. They're going to be interested in you. How would someone um, keep up with what you're doing on the internet? Um, yeah, I don't have a Twitter account uh, or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, I mean, so I I try to update my CV um, every now and then, or more uh, on a semi-regular basis. Um, so right now I'm at uh, I'm at Rice University. So you can just Google me and then uh, see what I've been up to or what kind of papers I've published recently. In terms of enclosed cognition specifically, we are still at the stage where we are brainstorming ideas for the next study. Um, it's you know, re <laughs> academics uh, are fairly slow, so research is a very slow process. I'm always you know, so this was um, the first piece of research that has garnered a lot of media attention, mm -hmm. and so I'm always uh, very surprised when you know journalists contact us and they say could you answer these questions by tomorrow or um you know can we have an interview two days from today and so it's just a, such a different time frame it's, it's a bit refreshing from a, from a certain way but you know so when we you know submit papers to um, to journals and uh, you know so from the time of submission until it actually gets published it's not uncommon to take a year or two years or even longer than that. So it's a, it's a very slow, drawn-out process, um, I feel, especially compared to like journalism. Oh, yeah. Um, right, so I, I don't think there will be any uh, new publication from us, at least, on enclosed cognition uh, in the near future. But we're definitely thinking about um, next studies. And, you know, as I think, uh, as I mentioned before, I think, going into the field might be very interesting and um, one specific question that might be very interesting to pursue is the effect of uh, casual Fridays for example so <laughs> yeah that's something that interests I, me personally I, I promise you if you do research into casual Fridays that that will be on the front page of everybody's newspaper and magazine <laughs> and blog uh, I promise it so if, you, if you're if you're working that angle you are on the right track um, <laughs> well look this is really Fascinating, wonderful research. I love that you're adding to our knowledge of the natural world, and this is some, and, and our understanding of ourselves. And I, I really, really thank you for coming on. Thanks a bunch. Well, thank you very much for having me again. And um, yeah, I, um, you know, I guess this can be now off the record. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. This podcast is free. It costs you 
nothing. And the reason for that is because great services like Squarespace pick up the tab. And you may have noticed that Squarespace, they sponsor a lot of podcasts. They're sort of recognized across the entire medium as a funder of podcasts, big and small, and they help everyone reach the next level and keep going because they really believe in podcasting. And they really believe that uh, the people that are listening to the podcast that they sponsor will be selective about the services they use to make websites and to make their presence known on the internet. And Squarespace is that service. If you're selective and you want something that's simple and easy and beautiful and drag and drop and fast, and it's just whenever I wanted to make a website before, before I, they were a sponsor, before I even had an idea uh, that I would make this podcast, I made websites for my other projects using Squarespace. I used it for a uh, TV show that I made about music in the deep South. And I used it for my personal website, um, davidmcraney.com, you know, cause you need your name out there. You need to be able to Google your name and be in control of at least the .com version of what comes up. And I knew that I just wanted something that I could easily put together. And if I wanted to add to it later or take away things, I could do that. And my favorite thing about Squarespace is that you can, go and get really awesome templates. You can buy really cool templates out there in the world made by professional designers. And then you can hand those plus the keys to your account to a professional website builder and they can make you something insane and you'll have the keys to use it and it's easy and it's cheap. Or you can just jump right in and with no credit card, no money spent, you can start a trial and just do two weeks of, of plundering around on your own. So if you want to do something over at Squarespace, you can use our offer code, less dumb. You'll help, you'll help this show. You'll help sponsor this show. You'll help keep it free. And you can use less dumb to get 10% off of your first purchase. Or you can use our special URL, which is squarespace.com slash not so smart. And by using that URL, you're also helping the podcast stay free, stay cool, stay funded. And you will make something really awesome over at Squarespace. So yes, Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And now we return to our program. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com, and if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb, or a confirmation bias t-shirt from our uh, You Are Not So Smart merchandise store. You pick. Whenever you send in the recipe, just tell me which, would you, which one of those things you would like and what size shirt you want if you want a shirt. And that's what you will get. I also post the recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And this episode's research will be fueled by this episode's cookie sent in by Todd Newman, uh, who wrote that um, he's a big fan of the podcast and he has modified a cookie that he first sort of saw on America's Test Kitchen. Um, and he has sort of combined it into this uh, recipe that he's perfected that he calls the perfect chocolate chip cookies. So these are the perfect chocolate chip cookies. And I have to say, 
that uh, these are interesting because you don't just cook a cook the recipe you don't just cook the ingredients that he sends you it's a very detailed instructions on how to prepare these ingredients and they're different from most of the cookies that we make um these you had to heat up the butter and you have to whisk it until the butter is browned and then you have to um do all this stuff with the heat and add the ingredients one at a time and the ingredients include cinnamon and i actually uh, have some real cinnamon that i had to i ordered off the internet um some actual cinnamon instead of the sort of kind of fake cinnamon that you usually get in grocery stores. And, um, you also have to chill these in the refrigerator. It's all, there are all these steps to make these perfect. And so we're going to try them right now to see if indeed they are the perfect chocolate chip cookies. So I'm moving some stuff around and I have my tea prepared and I have a cookie right here and now we're going to try it. All right, Todd Newman, bold statement to say that something is perfect. Let's see what happens. Here we go. Mm, here we go. Yes, look at you. Mm. Mm. Feeling it. I'm feeling it. Mm, that's down in my feet, down all on my fingers. Mm. Yeah. I believe it was Voltaire who said that perfect is the enemy of the good. Yet I find that aphorism lacking when I have this cookie betwixt my toothes. Mm. Boy, oh boy. So, um, yes, these cookies uh, eliminate the principle of the golden mean. Um, as these are a, an extreme example of 100% perfect. I agree with you. These are perfect. And here's the thing. Um, if I didn't know that there was cinnamon in these, I, I wouldn't be able to tell just from tasting them because it, it's acting as some sort of catalyst for all the other flavors. They're all mixing together absolutely properly. Everything is, is enhancing everything else. You mad scientist. What have you done? Todd Newman, you went to the labs. What have you boys in the labs been cooking up? Oh, cookies, I see. Well, I'll, I'll try one. These aren't poisonous, are they? Oh, great. Oh, well, that's why we pay you. Todd Newman, thank you very much. You have taken something from America's Test Kitchen and pushed it right over the edge. That is good stuff. You deserve a grant to for further research into cookie science. That is great. Um, I highly recommend you try these and I try and try making them exactly as he suggests. I'll ha I'll have the uh, recipe up at youarenotsosmart.com and Todd who asked for a medium t-shirt, you are getting it. Oh boy. Thank you so much. This is going to help us discuss today's self-delusion news. So, what are we going to do? what are what are we going to do that will top that? Nothing. But we can talk about some self-delusion news that was in uh, around the internet's this week. So I stumbled across this headline and it says distance influences accuracy of eyewitness IDs. And I was of course like, what? cause I love anything that has to do with eyewitness testimony. And that's because if you've read a lot of my stuff, if you're just in, interested in this world of biases and um, you know, delusion, perception, judgment, all that stuff, 
Um, you, one of the first things that you realize, one of the first things that gets knocked off of his pedestal is eyewitness testimony. And it, it sort of reveals to you that a lot of what goes into our justice system, what goes into politics, what goes into uh, how we run institutions and governments is, is are things that were not tested against science. They were not scientifically um, vetted. And one of those things is eyewitness testimony. In fact, um, I, Christopher Chabrie and Daniel Simons, who did the famous invisible gorilla experiment, they once did a survey of the United States public and they found that 37% of uh, respondents said that eyewitness testimony was reliable enough to be the only evidence necessary to convict someone accused of a crime. And I, I read about that in you are now dumb. Um, and what I basically say is that that's very scary. It's, it's especially uh, shocking to a neuroscientist or a psychologist because there's a lot of literature out there about how bad eyewitness testimony is, how bad we are at remembering accurately the things that we've observed and how susceptible we are to uh, having those memories corrupted either by our own recollection and our own desires to sharpen and flatten certain aspects of things and to make them more self-serving uh, or by other people. And so false memories and corrupted memories are extraordinarily easy to produce and eyewitness testimony is very, very um, inaccurate, lacking, and easy to corrupt. So uh, it's one of those things that probably, if we started all over again and used and vetted things with science, um, we probably would not include eyewitness testimony in our legal system. But we do, and that's horrible. Uh, but there it is. So this study is, of course, really fascinating because it adds to the literature on this topic. And what they found, this comes from uh, SciPost.org, and it actually uh, comes from Springer Select because uh, Springer's journal, Psychonomic Bulletin and Review, uh, this is a, uh, a news release that comes from that journal. And it says, quote, eyewitness te- uh, accuracy declines steadily and quite measuredly as the distance increases. Additionally, a good deal of guesswork or so-called false alarms also comes into play as the distance increases. These findings have implications for the trustworthiness of eyewitness account that are used to solve criminal cases. And so they go into detail. First of all, they give you this shocking statistic that about 80,000 criminal cases per year in the United States uh, use eyewitness identification as a crucial element in the testimony. That's, uh, That's scary. But it goes into detail. What they did is they had about 200 people view eight other people at different distances doing things. And then they had the observers go look at 16 photographs, eight of which were people that they did not see and eight of which were actually people that they did. And they tried to match the, um, the faces. And what they found was that you could actually chart very well on a graph, this nice slope that showed that observers ability to accurately identify people drops by 0.55% per yard in distance away from the person they observed. And, uh, they made false identifications at a rate of 0.44% per yard as the distance grew between the observer and the target. And, to me, this means that, yes, first of all, this is preliminary research. Uh, this is one study. Um, it's dipping one toe into an ocean of new evidence. So we have to be careful about just coming to conclusions. But it looks like the evidence is uh, suggesting that 
maybe one day in the future, a police officer can, or an, an investigator can go up to people who are eyewitnesses of a crime or to some sort of serious event. And as part of their investigation, ask how far away were you from the event or from the crime or from whatever it is that you, that you were observing. And they can actually plug that into an app or they can use a, a graph or whatever and come up with an analysis that immediately says, here's the percentage chance that the person is going to give you, uh, is going to either identify the person incorrectly or is going to identify someone who is not the actual person who was involved in the incident. And maybe they can expand out from there and just say, get a general idea of how likely it is that the person is accurately remembering what they saw. And that's fantastic. That shows that uh, I always love it when psychology can produce um, a tool and can be uh, quantified. Our perceptions can be quantified, especially our misperceptions and our delusions. And this is a great example of that. So if you're looking to learn more about it, it's distance influences accuracy of eyewitness IDs. And this adds to the literature on eyewitness testimony that uh, seems to indicate that in most cases, it's usually garbage. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about on this episode at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find links to all of the past episodes, all 24 other episodes of this show, almost an entire day's worth of information about your own self-delusion, your cognitive biases, and all the rest. You can find merchandise there, like shirts and cups and stuff like that. You can also find links and information about both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Not Less Dumb. You can go to Twitter, and you can follow me, at David McRaney, or you can follow the uh, the website and the podcast, at Not Smart Blog. We also have a Facebook page that's quickly approaching 50,000 people, and we want you there. The music of beds are by Drew Garraway, and the intro music is Caravan Palace. It's Clash. <laughs>